I am Scott Grimm. My wife, Deanna, is with me here, and we just couldn't be happier than to be with you good people today. And we bring you greetings from the People's Republic of California. We, we have escaped. For well, now, just, just for the week so far, all right? We got to go back. Uh, we thought we were going back today. Our flight got canceled, so maybe that's a God thing. I don't know. But we, we got to go back now. We, our hope is that when we go back, it's not as hot in Modesto as it was the day before we left. The day before we left, it was 115 degrees. Somebody asked me, they go, yeah, but it, was it humid? <laughs> Fol- folks, there's a point where humidity doesn't matter anymore. Uh, 115, I don't know what it is today, but that would make a great Sunday to preach on hell, wouldn't it? <laughs> Although in California, any weekend is a good weekend to preach on hell. But we are excited to be here. There is so much about this church that has, has just um, inspired me. I told the staff this week there are three things that I was struck by initially when it came to the Lamb's Chapel, number one. This is a church where there is a clear culture and tradition that holds high the Word of God. Amen? And I can tell you right now, I know a big reason for that is because your pastor, Pastor Brian, has faithfully taught the Scriptures for many years here. Good on you, sir. Another thing about this church that I could tell as I walk through the building, I see picture after picture after picture on the walls showing missions, endeavors that you have been involved in. This is a great commission-focused church. You are about the making of disciples among all peoples, and it's incumbent upon every church to be committed to that. And so be affirmed, be celebrated in that. And then you should know that your elders here are godly men that are unified and that are obsessed with being led by the Spirit. And so they, they seek the Lord's will and they represent you well. I just want you to know that. And uh, amen. That's, that's rare. And now, today I have learned that this is a worshiping church. Praise the Lord. I, I was about to rapture out on the front row over here. Uh, hey, can we, can we just celebrate your worship team? What a great job they have done, amen. Fantastic. Well, we got a picture. I want to show you my family. This is my family. Uh, there are four kids. We weren't able to bring them with us today, uh, but they're in school wherever they are. That's our youngest on the bottom there. That's Everly. She is six years old. And then we've got my son, Grayson. He's 11. And then my older daughter, Delaney, she's 16. And our oldest son, Hayden, the tall one there in the back, he is 18 years old. We just dropped him off. He is a freshman at the College of the Ozarks in Branson, Missouri. Come on. Are you kidding me? All right, all right. We, we got a, a Motown person over here. Um, we just dropped him off at college. Have you guys done that before? Drop your kids off? I, man, I didn't realize how emotionally taxing that was going to be. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no frame of reference about how, how that would be to drop off your firstborn at college. I, my, only, my only point of reference was when my parents dropped me off at school. They took me to college. We had a tearful goodbye. They got back in the station wagon. I watched those taillights go down the road. It just faded into the distance. They turned that last corner, and they were gone. And I was all alone. And I went, yes! <laughs> now, I don't know if that's how it was for my son, but I can tell you how, how this was for me. 
I did a whole lot of reflecting. I did a lot of evaluating over the last 18 years. Have I invested in this young man? Have I equipped him? Have I prepared him to launch him into this brave new world? And I know all you parents out there, you can relate to that. Right now, this time of year, that's when we do this. I don't care how old your kid is, if he's in college or high school or junior high or elementary school, they're going back, right? They're heading into a new year, new year with new classes and new friends and new teachers, new subject matter, new philosophies being foisted upon them from various corners, good and bad. A lot of it's bad. And what do we do to equip them to encounter all of that new stuff? We just give them more new stuff. We give them new wardrobe, new haircut, new backpack, new lunchbox, new binders, new this, new that. All of that is cosmetic, right? What they need, I believe, according to God's word, is not something new. They need something old. They need something that is of eternity. They need something that is ancient. And I don't know if you're a note-taking church, but if you are, I want you to jot this down. This is the great overarching thought for our time together today. It's this, in your notes, God seeks a new generation with a timeless faith. He wants a, a new generation with an old heart. He wants a throwback righteousness, something that harkens back. And I wanna show you today a story in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a story that exemplifies this. And it was my son's favorite Bible story as a kid. It was my favorite Bible story as a kid. It may have been your favorite Bible story. It's the story of David and Goliath. You see, in that story, David represents a new generation. But he's got an old heart. He's got a timeless faith. And here is the background to that uh, story today. It's not in our text that we're going to look at, but the background of this story is that David, as a shepherd boy, was anointed the king of Israel. God's prophet Samuel was sent to the home of Jesse the Bethlehemite because the king of Israel at the time was a weak man. He was an unprincipled man. He was disobedient, King Saul. God said, Samuel, go anoint one of Jesse's sons. He got to this house. Jesse's boys lined up. They all looked the part. They were big, tall, strapping guys. And one by one, God just said, nope, 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 nope. Samuel said, Jesse, you got any more boys? Jesse said, just the runt. David, coming in from the field. Here he comes, and he stands before the prophet. He does not look the part. He is not a big, tall, strapping guy. He's just a little guy. I like him already. (laughs) And, And God said to his prophet, he said, Samuel... Man looks on the outside, I look on the heart. You know what God saw in the heart of David? He saw something old. He saw something that hearkened back. He didn't see a new generation with new ideas and new philosophies. He saw something that hearkened back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joshua. And that is the kind of faith, a throwback faith that God is looking for, not just in David, not just in your children, but in you as well. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, what a pleasure it is to be with these good people here at the Lamb's Chapel, Lord. I just pray your blessing to be upon our time together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here among us, that he would illuminate this text for us, God, and show us what is applicable in our lives. And we pray your blessing upon us today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So let's look at 1 Samuel 17. Here is the context. Israel is once again at war with its age-old enemy, the Philistines. They fought these cats for for many, many, many years, and they are in this place, once again, of conflict in a place called the Valley of Elah. I've been there. It's in Israel. And at one end of that valley, you've got the forces of Israel. At the other end, you've got the Philistines. And they have engaged in in something that hopefully will keep this war short, uh, cheap, 
and relatively bloodless. They have, they have agreed upon a contest of champions. Each side is gonna field their greatest warrior. And these two warriors are, are gonna do battle mano a mano, and the winner of that one-on-one -on -one battle, the other side will serve the victor's side. It's just gonna be one loss of life instead of countless losses of life. And the Philistines have fielded their greatest champion. You know the name, Goliath of Gath. And he is fearsome. He is a behemoth of a man. In fact, he's a giant. And scripture tells us that there were many giants in the Old Testament era. We read about them as far back as Genesis 6 with the Nephilim and moving forward with the, the Rephaim and the Anakim and the, the Amorites and, and such. And Canaan was rife with giants. And Goliath is the most famous giant in all of scripture. He was armed to the teeth. He had a helmet of bronze he had a sword. He had a, uh, a spear like a weaver's beam, Scripture says. He's got a javelin slung between his shoulders. He's got a shield so big that another dude carries it into battle before him. And every day, he steps on that battlefield, and he issues a taunt to Israel, and he mocks them, and he mocks their leaders, and he mocks their God, and he dares them to put forth a man, any man, that he might slaughter him on the field of battle. And he's got those Israelites quaking in their sandals. Not one man wants to set foot on that battlefield against Goliath. And it is at this moment, on this particular day, when he is issuing that taunt, that our protagonist, David, arrives. He shows up at the Valley of Elah. Now, he's not looking for a moment of truth. He's not looking for heroism on this day. David is there for one reason and one reason only. He's an obedient son. He is simply obeying his father. Jesse has sent him on an errand because his brothers are soldiers in the Israelite army. And he sends David to bring them supplies and to get news of the battle. And all David is preoccupied with in this day is obeying his father. Let me ask you a question. Are you an obedient child to your heavenly father? Because here's what I want you to know. You can jot this down. In your notes, obedience prepares you for the moment of truth. David is not expecting to encounter something huge on this day. He's just being obedient. He is doing what God made him to do, you see. A few weeks ago, my wife and I watched a reality program. Now, my wife picks these programs. I would not choose these particular programs, you understand, for myself to enjoy. But sometimes as a husband, I like to invest in the spousal affection bank account, okay? You, you guys know what I'm talking about? All right, I don't need to elaborate. Anyway, I'm watching this show. It's about a farm, as they often are. And there's a couple that have purchased this farm. Now, they don't know what they're doing. They're just learning as they go, but they want to do this the old world way. They don't want to use any modern methodology in their farming. They don't want to use any chemicals or all this stuff. And so they're just kind of figuring it out as they go. They encounter a problem. Their duck pond is now overrun with algae, and all the ducks are dying off. And they don't know how to deal with it. How do we, how do we treat this algae without using chemicals? Because that goes against our principles. And there's another problem. They've got a fruit grove where the trees are being eaten alive by snails. And they don't know how to, how to deal with that. They can't use poison. That goes against their, their old world method of farming. So they think about it and they get an idea. They go to the duck pond. They, they take all the ducks. They put them on a trailer. And they back that trailer up into that fruit grove. Down goes the gate. The ducks waddle out. And they do what ducks do. And they just start slurping up all the snails. They just gobble them down, shelling all. Did you know ducks eat snails? I had no idea. And they're eating these snails. Problem solved. 
Now the ducks are gonna live because they got full bellies. You got trees that are not gonna get eaten alive. And, and you know, so thriving ducks, living trees, tasty snails. All because the ducks are doing what they're made to do. David is simply doing what God made him to do. You just need to be who God made you to be. You be obedient in the small things. You're gonna be ready for the moment of truth. When he says, let's go, you'll be ready because you are obedient. And so we see that in David. In verse 22, take a look. It says, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. We move on to 23. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So here he is. He's just talking to his brother. He's delivered the goods. He's in mid-sentence when he hears a bellowing coming from the field, and he turns. David is transfixed. He is aghast at what he is hearing. He cannot believe his ears, this mockery, this disdain. And he is just speechless as he stands there, rooted in place. And notice in verse 24, it says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, saw Goliath, they fled from him and were much afraid. And so here's the image. You've got this teenage boy, look of consternation on his face, and he is just standing there, aghast, much more battle-hardened men are running past him in fear. And as they do so, they see him. And they stop and they say in verse 25, have you seen this man that has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And so the conventional wisdom that David is getting from his peers is, boy, you better run. Have you seen this guy? He's gonna eat you for breakfast. You better turn around and hightail it out of here. But then they notice there's something about this kid. He looks ticked. He looks like he's about to throw down on this giant. They think, well, I would very much like to see that. (laughs) And so they say to him, you know, uh, the, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And so they are relaying to David what the king has made known. You see, the the situation is so desperate. Nobody wants to face Goliath. So the king has resorted to a bribe. He says, I'm going to give three things to the guy who kills this giant. I'm going to give a cash reward, a royal bride. You get to marry my daughter and be part of my royal family. And then number three, I'm going to give you tax-exempt housing. Some of you are thinking, that third one sounds pretty good. And, And I believe David's ears may have perked up here a little bit. Not because he wants the money or the girl, but because he knows something. What does David know? David knows that he has been anointed king of Israel. God's prophet has said it. He will be king. Now, he doesn't know how God is gonna cause that to be, bring that into fruition, but he is observant. Because he knows the promises of God, there is a perceptiveness going on in David. He is seeing that God may be at work. Okay, if I enter the king's family, that is a path to the throne, thus fulfilling the words of the prophet. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the promises of God? Are you acquainted with the word of God? Are you invested in his word to the point where you have a perceptiveness in your daily life where you can see where God may may be at work? You gotta know what God says in order to perceive what God is doing. You follow? And so we read on, and in verse 26, David says to those, what should be done for for, for the man who kills this Philistine and and, and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's He's just verifying It's that old adage, trust but verify. He just wants to confirm. This isn't a rumor now, what you're telling me. 
I want to get the facts straight. And then he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. And so we begin to see what is, what is behind David's, uh, David's uh, uh, actions here. What is motivating this young man? And so I want to give you six characteristics of the faith of David, this timeless faith. And if you're writing these down, the first one is that this faith is characterized by a timeless motivation. What is motivating David? It's not money. It's not the girl. It's not the tax-free housing. David has spent time alone with God. And because he's spent time alone with God, what matters to God now matters to David. He is consumed with the honor of God. And he says, this uncircumcised Philistine is defying the armies of the living God. David has been on a mountaintop with sheep. He's been alone. He's been praising God. He's been singing. He's been writing songs to God. He's been praying. He's been studying God's word. And what matters to God and what offends God now matters to David and offends David. The things that, that anger God ought to anger those who are close to him. Amen? That's how we make a difference in this world. And he starts to verbalize this. And as he does, it starts to convict his brothers a little bit. Look at verse 28. It says, now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know, I know the presumption, the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. I know what is really bringing you here, kid. You're just a disobedient little snot-nosed brat. Does dad even know where you are? You just want to see some action down here. What is he doing? He's casting aspersions on David's character. Why is he doing this? I think we may have a little spirit of Cain going on here. I think we got a little older brother entitlement syndrome. We ever see that in Scripture? Sure we do. Cain and Abel, uh, Jacob and Esau, the brothers of Joseph, even Jesus' own brothers. They despised him, right? And, and we see that in Eliab here. And he's probably projecting his own weakness onto David somewhat. You'll notice Eliab hasn't volunteered to fight this giant. So he, he's, he's a little convicted, I would say. And, uh, and he's lashing out. Now, David doesn't respond in kind. He says in verse 29, what have I done now? Was it, was it not but a word? He's, he says, I'm just asking questions here, brother. And as these two brothers start to uh, go back and forth, they are overheard by the servants of Saul. And they get word back to the king. We read that in verse 30, verse 31. And the king says, bring him to me. Now, now think about how desperate the situation is when the servants feel it is necessary that they go to the king and say, you know, king, there's a pimple-faced teenager. He says he might like to fight the giant. And the king says, sounds like an option, bring him to me. <laughs> and so they bring this shepherd boy before the king. Look, look now at verse 31. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And right here, folks, in your notes, we see another mark of David's faith. There is here a timeless character. David is not entitled. Now, he knows he's gonna be king someday. God has said so. He's brought before the king, the present king. David does not say, uh, excuse me, you're in my seat. No, he says, your servant will go and fight. He wants to humble himself. He just wants to honor the king. 
He wants to serve the king. He wants to serve his country. He wants to serve his God. There's no entitlement in David. Now Saul is skeptical of, of David's ability. And he says in verse uh, 33, uh, you, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you but a youth. And he is, he's been a man of war from his youth. He's saying, son, you are about to face off against an aircraft carrier and you are armed with pepper spray. This is not a fair fight. And David responds in verse 34. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by the beard and I struck him and I killed him. And your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. David has put Goliath in the proper category. He is not to be feared. Everybody else is quaking in their boots over this giant. They're saying he's too big to hit. David says he's too big to miss. He's big, he's not as big as my God. Didn't you hear what I said my God used to do for me? And he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. Now David's not just being crass. David is pointing out this is not even one of the covenant people of God. Not only that, he's not even a a truly seeking Gentile who is seeking the true God. This is a pagan who worships dead gods. He has defied the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, He's defied the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. And David goes on. He says, he has defied the armies of the living God. That's a contrast. He serves dead gods. We have a living God. And in verse 37, he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. We sang about that same God this morning. The same God who set the captives free. That's the God that we serve. David has this outlook. And there is here in your notes, uh, the third motivation, third mark of this faith is a timeless perspective on God. This is that same faith of Abraham. The same faith of Moses. David has a timeless perspective, an old school faith. And Saul, what can he do? But bless him. He says to David, go. And the Lord be with you. All right, kid, you want to go fight the giant? You fight the giant. Now, Saul follows that up, that blessing, with, with some conventional human wisdom. He says, you, you know, you're going to fight this guy. You need to look like this guy. You need some gear. Let me give you my gear. And in verse 38, it says, Saul clothed David with his armor, with Saul's own armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword, Saul's sword, over his armor. And he he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. David's putting on all this junk, all this armor, and he knows something's not right. And this is another mark of this timeless faith that God is looking for in your notes. It's a timeless discernment. He is discerning. Does the world ever try to put its armor on you? Do you recognize that when that is happening? The world is obsessed right now with trying to get everybody on the same page. We all got to think the same way. If a man wants to be a woman, it's a woman. If a woman wants to be a man, that's a man. If you just want to be non-binary, whatever. And there's so many countless other examples that the world tries to force its ideology, force its philosophy on us. And if you are a discerning Christian, you know this doesn't work. 
This is not God's way. David knows this is not the way. You see, this army is representative of the ways of Saul. Saul is a failed king. He is disobedient. He is unprincipled. David said, I got to do this God's way. I cannot do it man's way. But he's polite to the king. He says, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. Folks, you don't need to test the world's philosophies. You don't need to test them. David had no need. God had already tested him. What had David tested? He tested God. And time and time and time again, God had come through. We, we've seen it with the bear, with the lion, right? And we can test the word of God. God's word is sure. God's word is true. God's word is, is without failure. It was good enough for Moses. It was good enough for David. It was good enough for Samuel. It's good enough for you and me, amen? And so we put our trust. It's gonna be David who writes in Psalm 12. He says, he's gonna say this later. The words of the Lord are, are pure, like silver refined, tested in a furnace, purified seven times. You can trust in this. So he's got a timeless faith characterized by a timeless motivation, a timeless character, a timeless perspective on God, a timeless discernment. And now he's got something else. It says in verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. Five smooth stones. Why five? There's been a lot of allegory thrown at the five stones. There are people who try to figure out why, why five? Because he doesn't end up using five. So why are there five here? And people do their best to, to try to find some symbolism in this, all right? Some people say, well, this is, this is the five tables of the law. That's what that represents. You know, what that shows is that God is faithful to his covenant people, Israel. Well, I, listen, I believe that God is faithful to Israel. God has a covenant with Israel. He will keep that covenant, amen? I believe that with all my heart. That's not what this is, okay? That's not what this represents. Some people, some of my reformed friends, uh, they say, well, five stones, that's gotta be the five points of Calvinism, you know, that's, that's the five petals on the tulip, you know, that first stone, that's total depravity and, you know, and so on and so forth. Listen, it'd be pretty stupid for me and my first Sunday to preach on Calvinism here, but I'm telling you, for or against, that ain't it. We're not talking about Calvinism, I promise. Now, there's a theory with the five stones that I will admit I find interesting. It has been said, David chose five stones because Goliath had four brothers. And you read about, you, you can see their names, in scripture, Goliath had four brothers. That's why David needed five stones. Now, I'll admit, I kind of like that theory. I like that because I'm a movie buff and one of my favorite movies is Tombstone, all right? And I kind of like the idea of David as Doc Holliday. And he steps out on the battlefield and he's like, I have five stones. One for each of you. I'm your Huckleberry, you know? I like that. But I'll tell you what I think this is. I think David chose five stones to communicate, I am in this to the bitter end. I'm on a fight until there's no fight left. I'm on a sling until this guy falls or he kills me. I am not backing down. We're not gonna sling one rock, miss, and cut and run. I'm gonna sling until I have no more rocks to sling. And so he steps out, and we see here in your notes a timeless boldness. There's a boldness in this young man. Look at the scripture. It says his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Folks, you can do all the preparation you can do. At some point, you gotta step on the battlefield. If you don't, it's not 
faith. You got to put it to work. He goes out there and in verse 41, it says, and the Philistine moved forward, came near to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He was ruddy. That means he's just a kid. He didn't even have facial hair. Maybe just a little peach fuzz, right? Remember how you were guys as a teenager? I used to go to my dad as a teen. I go, dad, can I borrow your razor? And he's like, Why? Well, I got to shave. He's like, let me help you out. He put his hand on there. He goes, doink. There you go, son. That's David. Just not imposing at all. And in verse 43, it says, And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? He's, he's incredulous. This is who they send out? This is what they think of me? They send a kid? Am I a dog? The Hebrew word for dog is Kaleb. It doesn't merely mean dog. It's a euphemism for male prostitutes. Goliath is insulted. And he sees this shepherd's staff and he makes fun of it. He's mocking the good shepherd. Folks, are people still mocking the good shepherd today? The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. Amen? And the Philistine, scripture says, cursed David by his gods. And he said to David, come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. He said, kid, I'm going to end you. And when I'm done, I'm not even going to bury you. I'm just going to let the wildlife take you. You're going to be the excrement of birds and beasts. And David responds. And what follows here is one of the great speeches in all of the Bible. And as I read it, I like to imagine it being spoken in the cracked tones of a young man still going through the effects of puberty. (laughs) But these words are bad to the bone. Check it out, verse 45. It says, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. That's a pretty good opener right there. And he's establishing two things in that intro. He establishes, first of all, Oh, I'm not alone. I represent someone much, much greater, the God of Israel. And by the way, it is that God with whom you have a fight. It isn't me. You're not fighting the shepherd boy. You're fighting Yahweh himself. And in verse 46, he goes on. He says, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Folks, that's prophetic. You remember David said that. And I will give, check this out. See if this sounds familiar. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That is exactly what Goliath just said he would do to David. It's as though God has allowed Goliath to pick his own fate. And this is what God has done throughout history. You know, back in the Enlightenment, there was a philosopher named Voltaire. Voltaire hated Christianity, despised it. He would sign off every letter. He was French. He would sign off with this phrase, "Erasez l'infâme, which means erase the infamy. He believed Christianity should be erased, eradicated. And he predicted that 100 years after his death, Voltaire predicted that Christianity would cease to exist. Now check this out. 58 years after Voltaire died, 
His home was purchased by the British Bible Society. And it was used as a storehouse for thousands and thousands of copies of God's word, each one printed on Voltaire's own printing press. <laughs> ah, we have a just God. And he, he makes a mockery out of mockers, always has. David says all of this will happen in the text, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This kid is bold, but he is humble. He's saying the victory will not be David's. The victory will be God's. And that victory will serve the purpose that all of you pagans will know there is a God. All of you deniers of Yahweh will know that he is real. And all of you Israelites who say you believe in God, you will now know how that God operates. It's not by man's ways. His ways are higher than our ways. Now, here's the action, all right? Verse 48, check this out. When the Philistine arose, it came near and drew to meet David. Watch what David does. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. The titan charges across that field. He intends to make short, gory work of this runt. He, he wants to make an example of this shepherd boy. As he is coming, and you could just picture this guy, 10 feet tall, David does not brace himself. David does not hide. David runs to meet him. He runs to the battle. He heads toward destiny. I think of Jesus on the road to Golgotha, embracing his cross. He is heading with zeal toward the top of a hill where he will do battle with Satan and he will rescue mankind. And that's David. And he pictures Christ here. He's running. And here's what happens. One fell motion. Verse 49. And David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Now, David's got a sling. This is not one of these jobs. Sling is a long leather strap. Got a pouch in the middle. It's the cheapest weapon you could find. All you need are rocks. And rocks are everywhere. It was an incredibly accurate weapon. It was a great weapon for a, a shepherd you could ward off or kill a predator. It was also valuable in military use. The Benjaminites were expert slingers. They're gonna accompany David later on when he fights against the Philistines. They could hit a hair on a man's head from a great distance away. It was a semi-long-range weapon. The longer the strap, the greater the range. And here's how this flies, okay? You, you may have seen uh, a reenactment of this. David's doing one of these kind of things, like a wind-up. Folks, there was no time for that. This all happened way too fast. It's one motion. He dips his hand in his bag, he loads that thing, and then it's either one of these underhand, fast-pitch softball jobs, or it's like a crossover and let it fly. Either way, God gets behind that rock, and Scripture says the stone sank into his forehead. It's not a ricochet. It goes right in there, and he fell on his face to the ground. Fell on his face. That's significant. You see, years earlier, Israel fought against the Philistines. And the wicked sons of Eli were leading Israel at the time. And what they did is they brought into battle the Ark of the Covenant. This is that box that God had, had mandated to be constructed during the, the wilderness wandering. It was where his presence was manifested and his glory and it was a powerful, powerful thing because of the presence of God. The wicked sons of Eli treated it only as a good luck charm. 
And God did not honor that. And so he allowed Israel to fall to the Philistines. Furthermore, he allowed the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant. And they placed it in the temple of their God, Dagon. And there was this tall, grotesque statue of Dagon. And they put the Ark right before Dagon. And the next morning, they came back to their temple. And Dagon had fallen face down before the Ark of God. Just as this statue of a man is now face down before the God of Israel. Just as one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Pictured right here. Verse 50, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. Goliath's sword and drew it out of its sheath. How does he do this? No mortal man ought to be able to lift this thing. David's got the spirit of God on him. It's a minor miracle here. And he raises it and killed him and cut off his head with it. Prophecy fulfilled. He kills him with his own weapon. Folks, Jesus did the same thing at Calvary. He slew our ancient enemy, the devil, with the devil's own weapon. Who is Satan? He's the father of sin. What are the wages of sin? Death. How did Jesus defeat Satan? By embracing death for us. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. It was a righteous death to atone for the sins of many and he defeated the enemy by the enemy's own weapon. Now, side note, you may be wondering, what killed this giant? Was it a rock or was it a sword? Looks like he died twice here. What happened? It's a great question. I believe either blow would have been a mortal blow. That stone sank right in there. I think there was no coming back from that, right? He would have died. Quite possibly, there was still a breath of life in Goliath. And so David doesn't take any chances and he cuts off his head. By the way, if you've ever seen a horror movie, you know you gotta do that or the killer's gonna jump back up, right? (laughs) And by the way, Jesus has taken care of your sin, but every morning you gotta die to self, don't you? And so it says, when the Philistines, watch this, when they saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now, the men of Israel are gonna be reborn. Look at verse 52. It says, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'araim as far as Gath and Ekron. What's going on here? These guys are now bold as lions and they're chasing down the Philistines and they are winning the day decisively What in the world just happened? They were sniveling cowards just a few moments ago. And now they're mighty warriors. I'll tell you what happened. They witnessed an act. They witnessed a young shepherd boy who is humble, who is obedient to his father, who sets foot on a field of battle against a seemingly insurmountable foe and he kills him by his own weapon. And they they behold that act And by faith, they receive it and they are transformed by it. Folks, we look at Jesus, a humble shepherd, an obedient son. He steps on the battlefield against a seemingly insurmountable foe when all is lost and he slays that foe by his own weapon. And we watch that act and we receive it by faith and we are transformed by it. And In the power of God, we become mighty warriors. And what do we see? The final mark of David's faith 
in your notes is a timeless influence. Christian, your life is to picture Christ in such a way that people look at you and they know who Jesus is. And they come to faith because of the testimony that you speak and live and share and they are impacted by that. They see what is missing in their own life, what you have in your life and they want it and they receive it by faith and they are transformed by it. This is the way of God. It's not man's way, but it's God's way. It's what he wanted in the life of David for the king of Israel. It's what he wants for your children and for your children's children. And it's what he wants for you. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the the testimony of, of your word and of your faithful servants. God, we are impacted by the truth revealed through this revelation today. I pray that your spirit would pervade. Lord, I pray that every Christian in this room would take seriously the faith that you have granted and that we would be a living testimony and that we would be impactful in this world. In a world that is always shifting and changing, may we be rooted in that which never changes so that that testimony can impact others and change them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.